Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, we had what looked like it was going to be an epic Game 7 for a half, but Jason Tatum and the Boston Celtics had some other ideas. What a performance uh, by the Celtics, uh, by Tatum and Of course, Philly is going to face questions after this desultory loss. But largely, I would say that the Boston Celtics did this to the Philadelphia 76ers. They were unbelievable. Particularly in that third quarter, which the Perla Murray, the 33 to 10 margin, was the largest differential in a quarter of any game seven of all time. So and the that. ten points, the ten points scored by the Sixers is the lowest in any quarter in a game seven of all time. Incredible, and it, I'm sure there will be people who who get into big narratives, and we'll see what the ripples of this organizationally are for Philadelphia in time. Not right now, as we're recording this after the game, but it was a as you mentioned, like I mean, it was, I, I don't want to lose sight of how fun and competitive the first half was. I mean, there was a point. Right before when Harden lost that ball, flailed and got the and and the, drew the flailgrant as the flailgrant did uh, on the pod or, or on the, the so live broadcast. At that point, Philly was up nine, and you know Harden was in transition. And you can't guarantee that basket was obviously going to go in or anything like that. And well, then, yeah, I mean he had, he had lost it beforehand, yes, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And but from that point, whether that counts as an inflection or it's just like that was the that was just happened to be the moment, Boston took firm control and one way of describing there are a a bunch of ways you can describe that third quarter but one of them for me when I was going through the stats Jason Tatum scored 17 in that third quarter the rest of his Celtics teammates scored 16 and Philadelphia scored 10. (laughs) Yeah at one point in the third since the end of the first quarter it was Sixers 29 Tatum 27 and Philadelphia just couldn't do anything to deal with them and they certainly tried everything maybe they tried a few too many except for making him go right but other than that (laughs) yeah 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 they they tried a lot of different things they did not try actually executing against Jason Tatum but he was so incredibly good and he came out early he was determined to not have the same start to the game where he didn't have a field goal in the first quarter of the last three games and he said after the game that humbly I'm one of the best players in the world after he put it together in that fourth quarter to bring Boston back and he certainly proved that tonight NBA game seven record the one by Steph Curry stood about two weeks 
Exactly two weeks. <laughs> Put it up uh, 51. They were both 12.30 starts on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And he had it going every which way. I, I mean, I think he, there are certain things that Philly had been doing that gave him some trouble. And he addressed all of those in this game seven. Early on, the shot still wasn't falling again, but Tatum did a great job getting to the line a few times. Then he got some finishes and eventually the three ball, of course, came around. He finished the game six of 10 from three and 11 to 14 from the line. And I thought that a key stretch was in the second quarter. So before the barrage, the full barrage, D'Anthony Melton had done a very good job on Mm. Tatum throughout game seven. And honestly, he has at other moments in the series as well. And Tatum switched his approach, whether it was initiated by Missoula. We we, we don't know, at least at this recording. But Tatum started negating some of Melton's best advantages by starting the possession with his back to the basket, doing more of a post up. And that helped get him into more of a rhythm. You know, Tatum was aggressive from the jump, but like was able to get into that and started generating better looks, started making more of those looks. And then that set the table for the third. Yeah, just generally going more quickly, going more aggressively, had a couple great finishes over Embiid. I thought actually that using Rob Williams as the screener ended up really helping Tatum quite a bit to actually get a good screen, let Tatum start playing downhill. And I think there was a thought that, well, you know, Embiid, great defender, conventional pick and roll defense. I think that Embiid really struggled in pick and roll with Rob potentially getting behind him and knowing when to come over. Like maybe he had just lost the rhythm of when to do that, play that cat and mouse game. The Celtics did a, a great job of making it difficult for Embiid in those circumstances. And then in the third quarter, and Tatum already had the step back step back left going late in the first in the first half Sixers decide all right we're gonna in pick and roll we're gonna late switch Embiid onto Jason Tatum Jason Tatum first he blows by Embiid hard left late in the clock that in a late clock switch Embiid lets him get to his left hand lets him get middle Tatum really good finish that's something he didn't have earlier in his career to finish over someone like Embiid trying from behind then Tatum going left again fakes that hard left-handed drive gets Embiid off of him pulls the step back three on him and then late third early fourth he had another two possessions so I think it it was four possessions in all that Embiid was attacked off the switch by Tatum and Jason Tatum had 14 points on those possessions in the second half so then they're like all right you know that that didn't work we're gonna put two on the ball Marcus Smart immediately slips out of the screen and they get a a wide open three out of that which the Celtics uh, were knocking down they shot it really well from downtown Uh, ended up 15 out of 33 but at one point they were 13 out of 24 uh, during what we would maybe consider the competitive portion and so they're like all right we're gonna go zone okay just set a quick screen on Tyrese Maxey who's one of the guard defenders get Tatum a wide open three going to his left again by the way and so they tried putting pj tucker on tatum uh, taking him off of brown where tucker had been pretty good on brown who had been killing them early and harris had done a pretty good job on tatum but uh that didn't really work either uh, particularly because then they kind of just went to doing more switching and i felt like ultimately the best way to deal with it there may have been no good way would have been weak tatum which in this case i would say is actually forcing him right not left because he's just not as good he's probably a better finisher going right but not dramatically so and you also just take away some of the options because he's just not as comfortable most righties aren't going right shooting the jump shot and then you know maybe you have Embiid kind of up to the level but then dropping back and you hope that PJ Tucker can get through that screen and and bother him I think that 
just to continue to try to make it tough on him would have been it. And we saw, I didn't think that Doc Rivers was anywhere close to the reason that they lost today, but I do think he was kind of just randomly pushing buttons just to say that we did something different at that point that we weren't going to get beaten the same way. And I think that's important sometimes, but there wasn't really a lot of rationality to it. We've seen him kind of just start like randomly mashing the control mm-hmm. pad uh, when the initial plan doesn't work. Whereas, and sometimes it's better to make an adjustment, but if you're going to make an adjustment and then they do they score once on it like you need to have more belief that your adjustment is the right move than just like oh one possession that didn't work let's try something else that also goes in stark contrast to some of the adjustments both in game seven and throughout the series that joe missoula's made i haven't been the biggest joe missoula fan or defender overall i'm still working through how i feel about him as a playoff coach we're now going to get at least one more series to evaluate that but he made some very good adjustments over the course of the series to make life harder on the sixers one of them that we haven't talked as much about on the pod, but have talked a lot about on the playbacks is nexting. Um, and so basically the way that they've been changing some of the passing angles and Rob Williams, of course, is there. Nikai's Duncan did a great job writing a lot of these up. But overall, I thought that the Celtics, they they honed a lot of those things. And that's what led to the great J. King tweet, which, again, some of this is the Celtics, some of this is not that in the competitive portion of this game, however, we're defining that Harden and Embiid combined had more turnovers than field goals. Yeah, Made that's field insane. Goals. Absolutely insane. And Philly in that third quarter had seven turnovers and four field goals as well. Harden and Embiid had one field goal combined in that 10 point third quarter. Uh, just so so we have it here. Next thing that's we were talking about that on the last pot a little bit of when you run a pick and roll, usually on the side. And then the nail defender will come over and actually guard the guard coming over. And then the guy who's originally guarding the guard will sprint over to the opposite wing to take that shooter. I thought that like that wasn't something that just like killed Philly. Like Harden saw it. He threw a couple of passes to that guy on the weak side who got an open look, which of course he missed because this was a game six and a game seven for Philly. Apparently that they just uh, could not knock down shots other than PJ Tucker in the first quarter today, which we could talk a little bit more about, but. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique matches. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix matches are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house 
else. Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us i think just overall though this celtics defense was wonderful and this was a group i don't like this is clearly an offensive loss for philly and yeah they could have made some more shots for sure made this more competitive but joel Embiid, james harden like those guys got some looks and couldn't knock him down but they got worn down they got shown something different just about every time down i mean some of the things the especially list of in things the third on Embiid. oh yeah yeah that and i thought it was interesting as maybe particularly after game six that they really the key facet of their attack in particularly the second quarter was Embiid on the left wing iso post up uh, usually against al horford and after they had gotten all those open corner threes for tucker in the first quarter you can't really get that very well when you're posting and beat up on the opposite side because there just isn't enough space there's too many guys that have to all be standing next to each other on the weak side whereas when they're running more pick and roll then that spreads things out a little bit more you can somebody has to help all the way off the corner whereas if rob comes to help off the weak side corner on that isolation on the left side then you've still got a three on four with all these guys standing together because you don't have anyone in the strong side corner that's spacing out the defense so you know i felt like Embiid had some chances it was big to me that joel missed a few jumpers early uh, Mm -hmm. on his usual mid-rangers that are pretty reliable and so then Horford ended up just kind of backing off and letting him, sh- and, and he just didn't want to take those. Did Embiid even make a mid ranger in this game? No, I remember oh, for one. three. Yeah, so and, and at least at least in the first three yeah. quarters, I didn't. I, I stopped tracking after that. <laughs> 
<laughs> as he probably should have. So, and those, I think all three of those were pretty early. And so once he wasn't going to be able to take that shot and he's never been like the most amazing decision maker once he puts the ball on the floor going in traffic, he's gotten better when you just double team him when he has a live dribble first or before he's really started his attack. And so the Celtics didn't have to just like straight up double him until he put the ball on the ground. And so some of the, the tactics, a few times it was Horford one-on-one and Horford and get Embiid shot two out of 13 in the end with Horford as his primary defender as tracked uh, by ESPN. There was maybe one time where Embiid got baseline before the help could get there, got a foul on Horford. Uh, but Horford blocked his jumper again in the third quarter. And I mean, the, the one possession I thought that just showed like what Embiid was going up against in this game was he, they, it was one of the possessions where they had Marcus Smart on. I and mean, Smart like flopped down one time, got called for a foul. Like it, it was, I, I think it was useful to do that every once in a while again just to change up the looks you don't want that as like the primary thing and they didn't want rob on him so rob comes over scrams marcus smart out and it beats like okay well they just scrammed him out now it's the big guy that's what they want like they're if they wanted a double team they would have just left marcus smart here he's gonna leave so then Embiid's like all right now i got rob i can go to work goes to work and then jason tatum comes over just as Embiid tries to drive baseline spin back and takes the ball from him. And it was just like, this is like, how many different things did they show him on that possession? And there were many, many others like that, but that was the one that really stood out to me. And these are all like really good defensive players, but with a lot of different strengths and weaknesses. Um, it certainly wasn't helped that Philly couldn't make a shot in this game, but that was like, I don't, there's no other defense, I think, that could have contained Joel Embiid like this to have this level of connectedness, this level of experience playing against him, various different guys that you could play. We didn't even see Grant Williams in this game. And rim protection, intelligence, intensity, coaching. This was just a wonderful defensive performance with all the looks they're able to do to just completely shut down a team that is supposed to be an offensive team. Like that's how Philly was supposed to win this series. Defense, in in a way, I mean, the Celtics have done it very differently, but I think about some of the parallels between Boston and the Warriors where, like, the defense is such an underappreciated part of like what has gotten there. And and just they mentioned on the broadcast, but it bears repeating. This is now the sixth year out of seven, I believe. Maybe it's the fifth out of fifth out of seven that Boston fifth has seven. fifth out of seven that Boston has made the East finals under three different coaches as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. And let's recall really that the one year, well, let's see, what are the two years they didn't make it where it was uh 19 and 21 yeah, and 21 yeah. where they got beat by the Nets. Yeah, but that was without Jalen Brown, of course. But yeah, I mean, they didn't have it that year, probably anyway. Uh, so, and that was also the Nets that were just <laughs> had the the, the one series uh, by the Nets. And I think now we have to turn to just Philly, Harden, and be their struggles. Just what what went wrong for them? What are they What are they missing? I think there are a couple different key things that that they're missing that are extremely hard to hard to deal with and and the the basic distillation of it for me is even if they're lower quality overall true two-way players like the the idea so like there was this duality with pj tucker at one point during the third quarter where they needed his defense but his offense was making it very hard for them to survive he was four of six in the first quarter and then took one shot the rest of the game and tyrese Maxey, very good basketball player really brings some things to the sixers that nobody else does yeah and i'll give tyrese credit like he's really improved his defense individually a ton this year but he's for sure at six one he's never we're gonna be you know asking him to guard jason tatum is that's asking a lot there aren't many six one guys 
in the entire league who are going to be capable of doing that adequately. Similarly, Tobias Harris had a better defensive series than I anticipated. And despite having what looked like he banged knees with somebody early in this game, played a fair amount, did, you know, did a decent amount offensively, you know, 19 points, 7 to 13 from the field. But teams at times feel comfortable going at him. And if Tobias Harris, sort of like Maxi, if they were your fifth best defensive player or fourth, depending on the lineup, you could you could deal with it. And then the other part is the fundamental incongruity to me. And this is why I picked the Celtics in five originally was the fundamental incongruity defensively between Embiid and Harden, where Harden is not good enough to to like build your whole scheme around at this point. But also the things that work for him don't really work for Joel Embiid. Embiid can get out on the floor a little bit, but it tires him out and they don't have enough supplemental help defense. He's also not great at it. And so like when they did the deep drop, that's how they lost to the Hawks a couple of years ago. And so I I don't think that it's fair to say like you can't build a championship level team around Joel Embiid other than some of the potential health concerns. But the idea that it's harder to do that versus some other players, I think is completely fair. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you got there. I think I said at the beginning of the season that I thought Daryl Morey had done enough to build around Embiid and Harden that you could now say these are good enough role players around them that if they could be good enough, this team would be a championship contender. And who knows? Perhaps the Celtics are going to roll through the rest of the playoffs and win the championship and we'll say, hey, Philly actually was the second best team in the league this year. I always thought that's been overstated a little bit with respect to their 2019 team, but we may feel that way about them. And you might say again, well, Joel, yeah, he looked better at times. I mean, I think he only had what I would consider to be you know, one really great game in this series which was game five which notably he didn't have to play really much in the fourth quarter of that game but and but the health is part of it and that Joel gets injured in the playoffs every year until he doesn't that has to be priced in as part of what he is and you mentioned some of the defensive concerns where you know there isn't necessarily like peak warriors out there anymore but there are teams like the Celtics like Jason Tatum when he's going this well where Joel you can't play a drop coverage which he actually wasn't very good at in this series anyway by the way and and then he can't switch and so like you don't there are only so many things that you could do to stop someone from taking a three-pointer off the pick and roll when you don't have the ability to switch and that's the been one of the defining elements of nba strategy uh, over the last 10 years or so but really like we knew that that was the Embiid Harden. I thought Harden actually played a pretty damn good defensive series to the point where they didn't really attack him uh, that much. You know, there were t- he missed, lost smart in the first quarter for a three. Like, there were a few of those, but you really didn't feel like he was killing them on defense in this series. And they defended well enough to win in this series. Like, even in this one with the Celtics shooting a crazy amount, yeah, they put up a 120 offensive rating, but with the, the great shooting that they had, like, that's the as what this Philly offense offense was supposed to be was supposed to be good enough even to compete in a game like that but Joel Embiid and James Harden were not good enough that to me I mean that's going to be the dominant storyline after this and that's correct like James Harden had two amazing games in the series and just five like absolute crap games of which they won one of them I mean Harden was a little bit better but he just he still couldn't score in that game five really so to me that's that's what it is is like they Joel Embiid and Harden like weren't good enough offensively like not even close I would say and like yeah all right PJ Tucker would have been nice in the third quarter like they couldn't score like I'm not putting that on PJ Tucker like I, I'm really not like he he's able to make open corner threes like they weren't able to actually generate those shots for him uh and so like they're slow they they got like this great stuff in semi-transition in the first half that completely went away uh, and they just weren't able to score well enough sure put it the support guys being great if they made some shots
shots. Like I, I get that, but there's a lot of been a lot of game sevens when teams haven't made shots and they didn't involve you know their two stars shooting. What did they shoot combined? It was just something terrible. The final numbers they were yeah, ten so of thirty. It, yeah, five of no, they weren't ten of thirty. They were eight of twenty nine. Oh, sorry, I was looking at Maxi. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I was looking at their two best players, not Embiid and Harden. Yeah, it's scoring 24 points goodbye, be negative 28, negative 30. Uh, and like James Harden can't score at the rim. They they took advantage of that in the end, despite the fact that he had a couple of good games doing that. And they're very reliant on foul drawing. They didn't really get to the foul line. In this one, Harden's only two free throws were a bullshit call that might have been overturned if Missoula had challenged it, although he decided not to. And, and B didn't shoot a free throw in the second half. That all goes in the say. rocket file, Nate. Yeah, I, I did this rant at the end of the playback and I, I think i should probably do an edited version here it was a report if you if you care enough to listen to this podcast you probably have seen this already right before the game of course just in time for doc rivers to be asked about it it's from Woj. an interesting dynamic approaching celtic sixers game seven per sources nba's officiating game report shared with teams from game six revealed a significant disparity 13 officiating errors disadvantaging the 76ers to four disadvantaging boston these can include calls and non-calls and this is a daryl morey special it seems pretty obvious to me this is the same thing came out after game one in 2019 going going back to talking about game seven in 2018 and i just don't think that it's productive to have that out there publicly and it doesn't make you look good personally as an organization or as an organization just to even be complaining like that publicly yeah behind the scenes the league yeah pointed out absolutely the league's well aware of it but when you come in with this mentality and i think particularly because joel and harden are not like the most resilient guys they are very reliant on foul drawing if you have this mentality and i'm not going to say this is why they lost but i don't think it's productive this mentality of hey we're getting screwed here right like this is out of our control the referees are against us and like that's that's why we lost game six it's not because we shot eight out of 34 on three pointers no no no. it's because of this that's the implication of putting this out there publicly not only do you look like sore losers not only do you look like whiners but then if that's how you feel about it internally when things start to snowball now you have an externally focused approach to try to get out of it rather than internal it's oh man like uh, the stars are aligning against us we can't do anything about us the refs are screwing us instead of no we control our destiny it's up to us we're the ones who are going to do it it's in our power to reverse this and when you don't have that mentality to look inward first about being better then it's really hard to reverse a tailspin once things start going wrong to have the resiliency that you need in an environment like this it's a great point and it also creates and this is more of a spillover effect but i do think that the league will care about this it creates even more toxicity within social media fan bases everything else like that because there are a variety of different reasons why calls can be incorrect it can be they had a bad angle and just like how slow motion makes things look more intentional looking at something like this especially when it is specifically not made public for other games makes it kind of gives the avenue for both well-meaning and non-well-meaning actors to exploit that information and it doesn't provide anything productive all it uh, and i mean i've criticized announcers for similar things in the past and it just it doesn't do anything good and it does a lot of things poorly and it also i 
mean, like there there could be a variety of calls. I thought that a number of the important or, and or obviously incorrect calls in Game Seven went against the Celtics. And you had all this stuff about oh, one of the one of the referees, his family, or Celtics fans, all this stuff. It's like unless you can bring me proof that, and I don't mean one loss record that they've consistently materially made calls in favor of the team they allegedly support. I don't want to hear. And if those sorts, of, if you can get those sorts of corroborated accusations, then I will absolutely listen. And I just I, I think it's poison like for for everything and if you can bring the proof bring the proof if we need reform we need reform but outside of that all it is is just belly aching and maybe this is coincidence but the flagrant right on james harden and i was i thought it was like kind of borderline it was tough to say right like he just loses the ball and then he does kind of flail and he that's something that he does often where he just tries to draw a, a foul like just generally if there's any kind of contact maybe he's just like trying to disguise the fact that he lost the ball on his own whatever it was he did kind of an unnatural motion right like there's nothing really if you're going up for like a normal shot there's no reason for your right arm to be like slamming into the face of the defender and there is some precedent there going back to like that kobe on Manu ginobili play years ago but is it possible that hey now like the, the referees are screwing us this is against you no know, that's it's a a call they didn't agree with i think it's on the borderline like i ultimately probably come down on the fact that it should be a flagrant one because harden is it does a lot of stuff to try to sell calls and in the course of doing that he hit jalen brown in the face there wasn't really a basketball purpose for it but then like and and they scored off of that i think they got like six points in a row that's when the run really started but are they now like oh man it's all going against us i don't know it's it's just one of those things where you kind of question that like when there's a turning point like that and this is just such a ref focused team a ref focused general manager two ref focused players who are maybe more reliant on drawing fouls than just about anybody in the league and not only drawing fouls but drawing fouls through tricksterism i will say that philly played really well i thought defensively like melton like they're tucker like guys were all over the place like harden had a couple of nice plays they had six block shots in the first half like i thought we were really headed towards a classic game and then man did they let go of the rope in that third quarter i don't want to necessarily dwell on these points but i do think there were some just jaw-dropping stats more in relation to this kind of putting this sixers defeat in a broader context even if i'm not saying it's the most like dispositive or anything like that so one of them from john schumann over the last six years, the Philadelphia 76ers have the second best regular season record collectively behind the Milwaukee Bucks. 14 teams have made a conference finals during those six years. Philadelphia is not one of them. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And having a best player who is inconsistently available, certainly a part of that story. There are plenty of other reasons too, but yeah. Yeah, and also relying on Ben Simmons and James Harden as your second stars and and Embiid, I don't think that resiliency is his number one strength in terms of his leadership necessarily. Harden, by the way, he made it with that one above the break three-pointer in the third quarter to three for 11 for the game instead of two for 11 which was his specialty in elimination games before that. So by, uh, I think, the 2057 Eastern Conference semifinals, he should, if he continues this rate of improvement, get up to shooting 50% from the field in an elimination game. Oh, boy. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once, starting at $40 a month. 
Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. And, should, they and fire, the, should they fire Doc? Or, 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 or well, you, you had some other stats? Or, or I had one other that. one yeah. just from, from Mike Prada. Doc Rivers coach teams, when they have three wins in a seven-game series, now have a 16-33 and 33 record. That's incredible. If you think of it, because if you get to three wins, your team is probably pretty good, right? You should. I, I wonder what the overall one-loss record is in that circumstance. It's got to, you got to be like an average, like a 75% winning percentage in that, just throughout are, NBA history. Yeah, and I mean, it is true that generally, if you have three wins, a loss may create another one of these situations so you can get the cascade, but it could also happen the other way. You know, like you can, you can just win that game and then there's only one and then you go one to no. And I thought that overall Doc Rivers did a did a completely respectable, if not outright positive job in this series. I mean, he really that they uh, some of the credit should go to the Celtics, but an undermanned team winning that game one that helped keep them alive. You know, like that that was sustained them. I thought that he made yeah. good adjustments. But they did better in this series than people thought they would do coming. In. Like that should not be yeah. lost. And in the and evaluation. guys bought in, played hard. You know, they weren't always necessarily the most effective. And I thought that a number of the adjustments that Rivers made over the course of the series worked out reasonably well. The Paul Reed at backup center minutes, generally speaking, I think worked out pretty well in this series. And I think he was a better option than Deadman or Montrez Harrell. Remember, they're both on this team and leaning a little bit on Daniel House, even though I thought they should do that more earlier. And like, I mean, Melton played very well overall. And some of the tactical stuff, I mean, I brought up the fundamental incongruity for me defensively for the Sixers. I thought they played a better defensive series overall than I anticipated. I mean, I picked yeah. the spot. I was very aggressive with it. So in terms of whether Doc should be fired, and this will tie in, we're of course going to discuss Monty Williams as well. There are typically two reasons why you fire a coach of a successful team. One of them is the this is not the right person. And so that can be, you know, tactically, that can be their 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 voice doesn't carry in the room anymore. They don't they don't fit. They they're playing the wrong guys, like all that sort of stuff. The other one, and this is what I think is going to be so compelling, not only in a potential Sixers case, but for the Suns, for the Bucks 
And I would have said for the Raptors, but it's pretty clear that we know the answer to this right now, which is you have somebody else lined up. And so the idea there being that you're not choosing in the abstract. You're not saying we want someone instead of this person. It's we want this coach instead of that person. And that is juicier now than it has been at any point in the dunked on era because of the other coaches that are available. This is and the other openings too. And the other openings that are available. Good openings. So if if now that just because Nick Nurse is available does not mean that any one of any team, much less any one of these teams, and especially because a lot of these coaches have a lot of money coming to them outside of this, so they could take time off if they want to. But the quality of the openings is there. So I I don't think of Doc Rivers as one of the best coaches in the league. He has specific strengths and he has some weaknesses as well. And he assuaged some of those my concerns about his weaknesses overall. If I knew that I could get one of the five, ten best coaches in the league, sure, I would absolutely fire him. Assuming Harris isn't is willing to pay the money and he's not all tied up in buying the Washington Commanders and all that. But so so yes, so so yeah, in I that don't think context, Doc has much left in his country. This is two years, year. I believe. So he, uh, yeah, I'm guessing one of those is probably a team option. It, it could be. He 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 used the phrase two years, and I saw it tweeted numerous times by media members. But that happened. Um, yeah, yeah, it very well yeah, could hit, be an option. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a- anything else on Doc? I, I got a few. Um. Takes. So. But the short answer is yes. I think that I would. If Joel Embiid felt incredibly strongly on it one way or the other, I would absolutely listen. I think Embiid has earned that right. But that that is a right to listen, not a right to do what he said. Um, and I, I, there are coaches out there now that I think would be an upgrade on Doc. So, sure. Yeah, I think at this point, and of course, what's going to happen with James Harden matters here. The fact even that you could see if they take another step back or can't get over the hump that maybe even Joel could possibly want to move on especially if they lose Harden and they just don't really have a co-star and you could argue that Harden just isn't really that co-star um anyway so it doesn't matter I think Doc actually is one of the best regular season coaches in the league and I wouldn't for the of the list of reasons why they lost this series, I would put Doc, you know, four or five on the on that list. I thought generally he coached a pretty good series. There weren't a lot of things where I was just like, man, do something else, do something else. Now, as I noted, there is like a little bit of master of panic quality when it really starts slipping away from him. And we only saw them really blow one lead, uh, I thought. Uh, and you could say they nearly Joel's, blew another one, though. Yeah, I, I guess you could say Joel not getting the ball at the end of game six for four minutes would also be something. But he was involved in every pick and roll like it just like they were trying to make the right play it didn't go to him like that's that's, in the moment i wasn't like what the hell are they doing necessarily but i think at this point like you you kind of framed it as like okay is there someone to upgrade or is this guy just not the right guy i think at this point the playoff failures are just too too much of a monkey uh on everyone's back at this point like it's just for doc now to have lost nine straight games when he has a chance to advance to the conference finals for him to have lost 10 game sevens which i believe is double the amount that any other coach in nba history has lost and now he's been on some really good teams that's part of that but i think it just psychologically a new voice would make sense and and maybe there isn't someone that they think would be better than him and maybe they don't move on from him for that reason and as we talked about with all these openings like Giannis what's his future there's particularly with the new CBA like they're kind of limited Harden is he going to be back like how good is he going to be at his age Joel could he how long is his future in Philly necessarily if they don't look like championship contenders Phoenix there are a lot of questions there too I mean I guess Phoenix is probably the best job right now a a lot a lot of questions 
here about these three big jobs that, you know, I think this will probably be it. Mm, I don't. In terms of, of uh, people leaving. Well, people being fired, I would say. Yes. You, th- you think Lou's going to leave, though? I do. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, maybe. But he's like, they want him back. Uh, this is, but I think all these teams aren't going to, that are left, aren't going to move on from their coach if they, at this point. Yeah. I don't see Spo, Ham, and his, uh, uh, Michael Malone or Missoula, uh, being replaced at this point. So yeah, I probably would move on from him unless there was just no one that I really believed in. But I, I just, I, I think there's still a feeling like something needs to change him now. They, again, I put this way more on the stars than anything else, but I, I just, I don't have a belief that Doc Rivers is quite the right guy even though I don't necessarily look back on this series as like, oh, he lost them this series. And I thought they actually kind of exceeded expectations in the series, given Joel's health status coming in. There's also the like deserve got nothing to do with it in terms of we're looking at the totality, not just these series. And I think that right. there have been other playoffs where I've been massively critical of Doc. And there have been other series where I've been massively critical of other players on the Sixers and everything else. One other stray note, just because inevitably when I, I brought up that stat about Philly having the second best regular season. That often comes to a criticism of the process and Hinky and all that stuff. I firmly believe that if he had been able to do those next stages, they would have had a better talent base. Probably still would have had many similar problems. But the idea that the process failed, that all these other things, because of the team's success, I I, I don't find that particularly persuasive. Yeah, and I think they, if they had matched up against Milwaukee, maybe even Miami, they might have been able to get at least to the conference finals. Like the Celtics were the worst matchup in the league for them for all the reasons that we've talked about. And uh, I mean, the the real missed opportunity was 21 to get to the conference finals. And then against that Hawks team. That's pretty rough. Uh, James Harden was asked how his relationship with Doc Rivers is and if he'd like to see him return as Sixers coach. This per Rich Hoffman. Harden says, our relationship is okay. Now, I maybe he means like it's good as in it's not bad but well i don't know how much input james harden's gonna have on the next philly coach so now we turn regrettably again to memphis you said it right when it came out i completely agreed with you that if all these incidents with john morant that he got suspended for in the end eight games were the last incident of this sort then this would be a small footnote for john morant another incident occurred it did and the timing here so john morant posted a or was was in i guess included i don't know the correct terminology here with ig live but it was a yeah, part here, of I, it I, I can i can elaborate just on exactly what happened here so i believe it was the same friend of his who ended up getting banned from nba arenas for a year after the incident with the indiana pacers where he got into it with them and then there was the laser pointer being shown at the pacers bus that may well have been attached to a gun uh, i think the guy's name is Devonte pack he was doing an ig live which is basically just like live streaming video first of all why would you ever do any kind of ig live ever with anyone after what happened the first time because he had a gun at a strip club as well on ig live so they're singing along to some song in the car together pack is in the driver's seat pack kind of just does a little like gun sign with it with his hand he pans over to morant and morant very very briefly has what appears to be a gun in his hand pack realizes like oh no he puts the camera down immediately but there's enough there that it came out that it was you can see what appears to be a gun in the screenshot morant has been suspended immediately from all team activities by the grizzlies mike bass said the nba is looking into it surely there will be more of an investigation one would think however that if this 
ends up being a, a real gun. Even even if it's a fake gun, probably there'll be a suspension, I would imagine. But a real gun, and like that's now that he's not involved in any team activities, right? Like there's no indication he may have taken the gun with him to any facilities or anything like that. So there's not that component of it. But it seems like they were very much on a like, all right, you're kind of on zero tolerance here. What do you think happens now? Assuming, I mean, I, I don't know that there's... Unless he's like, oh, it's just a toy, plastic toy gun or something. Even that, I think, will lead to a suspension, but maybe not a big one. And this could also be a circumstance where, especially now that the CBA is going to be done, that the union might fight this on his behalf. But assuming it's just like, you know, it's a real gun, he just decided he's going to flash it again on IG Live. Maybe it could even be that John didn't even know they were on IG Live. Maybe he just thought he was taking like a video for private consumption or something. This feels like it's going to be like a suspension that's going to be like tens. Of- I have I have the same thought, especially because he was given a chance to assess and there might not have been the same risk to others and, and everything else here, but there is the idea of like, we warned you, we kind of counted for games served when you were away from the team and you chose to do this again. It, how how deliberate, how inadvertent it was does matter, but that will be a part of the league's investigation. And my most imp- the, for me, the central part of this is I, I, I'm hoping for the best for John Morant, you know, like he is. I don't I I don't know, you know, I I can't I would admit to not being the most knowledgeable about his situation. And I mean that in a broad sense and a narrow sense. But we have seen great players, seen their careers affected, sidetracked by off court behavior. This would not be a first time thing. And it's sad every time. And Brent has plenty. He still has a large window to to do whether it's to be to be to have this deep in the rearview mirror, but it is going to affect his present. It is going to affect his future. And even beyond like the potential that it, the last incident cost him an all NBA spot and all that money, like this could be end up having ripples for endorsements and everything else. So first off, hope, hope for the best for him would hate to see a person much less a young player of great talent in the field that we that we choose to focus a lot of our energy on be sidetracked by stuff like this that would just suck it already sucks and it would be so much worse yeah and that was the my initial reaction is like this just sucks and whatever a sensible counseling he got going to florida or whatever i was a little skeptical of that whole thing like how many changes are you really making in terms of counseling if if there you really do have a problem whether that's alcohol related violence related some combination of the two any other substances whatever the issue is to be like oh yeah i went to this place for a week and now i'm fine that was never particularly realistic to me but his job was regard that he'd be back and the suspension was over and uh there was a hope that this behavior was an aberration. There was enough of a pattern to maybe be concerned that it wasn't. Now, he did take a ton of public contrition about it. And he even after they lost, he had the quote, I've got to be better with my decision making. That's pretty much it. Off the court issues affected us as an organization pretty much just need more discipline. After all the shit that happened to just not be like, hey, we're never going to have guns around us again. Like we're just getting rid of every single one of them. All of you are on me. We're all doing this. Not to mention to just be like, like, don't even put yourself in the position where you 
you can make a dumbass decision on IG Live. It just the, the fact that there are so many easy ways to avoid this shit and he still doesn't, like that really makes you have a pretty high level of concern for his decision making. And we'll see what happens now. I, there maybe there are some details that could like slightly exonerate him, but the fact is he did the exact same fucking thing that he got suspended for. <laughs> I mean, that, like, however you want to couch that, that's the facts. And particularly because it, it seemed like maybe he had gotten off a little lightly compared to what some people were thinking was going to happen, which I, I didn't agree with that. I thought that was probably about right, uh, about what I was expecting, I should say. Maybe there'll be a grievance over over this, but it's, I mean, just think of the, the enormous distraction that's going to be for the Grizzlies organization. Is the suspension going to get resolved before the offseason? Do they have to go get another point guard now? Oh, it's just like fuck what a disaster ah the sweet sound of sports you love from sling the collide of football pads the squeak of shoes on a basketball court the crack of the bat on a home run the slice of skates cutting across the ice but what about this one that's the sound of all the sports you love all at once starting at $40 a month experience it all live with sling sling everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. Do you want to go to Phoenix? We already kind of talked about it in some ways, but it's still, I, I think we could be a little bit more explicit about it. Yeah, uh, Monty Williams is out as the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. That, despite having between 20 and $25 million in guaranteed money remaining on his deal, perhaps had it not been for a second straight just awful Game 7 collapse at home, or, or elimination game collapse at home, he might have survived a, a little bit longer. There also was a little bit of an aspect of button pushing for Williams as, as well. We noted that Deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. Applies there too, that to just only have whatever it was, 19 games with KD and never have a chance to implement his system and have a, a chance to see how things were working out with the role players. But this is one of those ones where, and we'll see who they get to replace him, of course, but maybe it's the same thing as with Doc, right? Because like with Doc, all right, you go through the whole season, everything's going great, everything's going great. And there's just this specter of like, okay, what's going to happen when we get into like, the end of a series, when we get into a game seven, right? Like, like are we going to just like, are we going to just lose again to not have confidence to just have that history of failure? And now you go back to two years in a row of the same thing with Monty. And then you throw in the interpersonal aspect too. He obviously couldn't get everything out of DeAndre Ayton. I'm not sure anyone necessarily could. He tried the tough love approach that worked in 21, clearly didn't work in 22 and 23. And to just have them piss away Jay Crowder because he was pissed off at, at Monty, I think part of that was Crowder too, but maybe another coach could have managed that situation a little bit better than Monty did. And so it seems like, and I don't think that there's an issue with like KD wanting him gone or Booker wanting him gone. Like those guys and Booker in particular, like Monty, what were they before Monty got there? Like he did a great job. If they do eventually win, he'll have had a large part to play in that in a way that Doc didn't necessarily in Philly. 
because he was responsible in a lot of ways for their rise and i he reached number two on my coach rankings at one point late last year but i also completely understand why they they moved on from him and it may even be the right one there there's also the significant dynamic of Mattish Bia and his potential role in this. There was that reporting from Woj, which eventually got, let's call it slightly modified, that Ishbia has been extremely hands-on. And we, we know that he had an integral role in the Durant trade and them actually making it happen and what they gave up to do it. And yeah, can, can I give the full the exact line sure. that was removed from Woj's article was Ishbia has taken full control over basketball operation. Now you would say any owner has full control over basketball operations in a general sense but is that meaning that Ishbi is like making every single decision well of course he's going to make the decision to move on from the coach although the press release said it was James Jones making that decision I not I mean maybe James Jones would have thought he needed to go but also maybe it's mad Ishbia saying like all right like you're in a pressure too not James Jones you better get this shit right uh but clearly Woj is under the impression that you know Ishbi is the one really getting in there making these decisions and uh Doug Holler and Shams had uh, a note that Matt Ishbia is really a hands-on leader in his other businesses he calls it being in the weeds that's his process he knows no other way and it shouldn't be a surprise that he's making changes but yeah you're starting to talk more about Ishbia from your end as well sorry if I uh hijacked that that you 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 got to where I where I wanted to go and that's the the idea that owners you know they they do have the quote-unquote right to run their team how they want they're we they also have the right to be criticized for it and there are numerous examples over the various different North American sports of owners thinking that their philosophies that led to success, and I'm not even talking about things like survivorship bias and all these other things, will work in a completely different arena. And there are also owners who are very hands-on and it has been successful. And like, I mean, it, it appears that while there are other strong voices in the room, that Joe Lacob has a strong voice with the Warriors. They won a championship as recently as last year. And there are numerous other ones throughout professional sports. However, this plus like the looming question of what Isaiah Thomas's role is within the organization. And that even gets more complicated if the owner is doing a lot of stuff themselves, because then you can have soft power anywhere. This is a this is a challenge with Mark Cuban as well. Like this came up with Bob Vulgaris before he was brought in formally with the team and numerous other places around around the NBA. And generally speaking, I think those things do not work out particularly well. However, I don't know if it will in this specific case, because my theory, which could absolutely be wrong here, and we'll know within probably about four days, is this is one of those firings with somebody else in mind. I don't know whether that's the extremely easy dot to connect of Michigan State and Tom Izzo, or whether it is a different coach like Ty Lue, who is, of course, currently under contract with the Sixers or with the Clippers, or one of the available ones like Nick Nurse or Budenholzer or a prominent assistant or something. But we'll see. And I think odds are the next coach of the Suns will not be as good of a head coach as Monty Williams. But again, that also doesn't necessarily mean that firing Monty Williams was the, was the wrong thing to do. So it is... I want to see who they get, but there's also an element with the Suns. Like, and this is what I, I always think of Jason Kidd with the Bucks as the gold standard the opposite way, which is is there something that the current coach now deposed did not do that somebody else could do and it would work? And with money, I don't really have a good I don't really have anything that was clear there. I don't think, you know, this team was incredibly shallow after the trade. Yeah. They got rid of a lot of important players. They didn't really have like a defensive scheme that made a ton of sense. Off 
offensively, yeah, I would have loved, loved to have seen more Booker KD pick and rolls. That's not something KD has done a ton of in the past. It was a criticism I had of the Warriors back when they had Steph and KD. Um, and also, like, just they, they had limited personnel. And so, and they had personnel that became more limited as Chris Paul got hurt. So generally to me, that means that you're probably going to do worse from a coaching perspective in the next hire. Well, well, here's what I would say to that. I, I think it's really more from an emotional perspective. And Monty himself said it, not that this is should be a reason he should be fired, but it, I think he's correct that to lose two closeout games in a row like that at home being down 30 in the first half there is there is an emotional component to that yes to just not be and yeah Booker was hurt I think I agree with you I think he pushed at least at various points all of the buttons that I would have wanted him to push at some point in this series like they weren't as good they were relying on just an absolute superhuman effort from Booker and just couldn't sustain it once Booker wasn't superhuman anymore after he hurt that foot and he didn't have DeAndre Ayton or Chris Paul and in the game six either but just to have a, a complete non-compete like that two years in a row, i mean it's really almost i would say it's more about last year's game seven that he's being fired even the, mm-hmm. than, than this year's when they should have they had the better team yeah there's covid maybe so a few a few notes here before we talk about some of the candidates monty williams and mike bunos are the head coaches in the 2021 finals they are both now gone uh this is the first time since 2006 that head coaches who faced off in the finals were both gone no more than two seasons after that finals that was uh, avery johnson who was fired and pat riley who was just uh, he was probably just about done uh, at that point and i'm sure he could have stayed on if he had if he had wanted to and the of all the coaches since 2018 who have had the best record in the nba none of them remain with their franchise that's pretty remarkable well, so Nate, I, Canada, Nate, I yeah. can give you another one. Oh yeah five of the last seven coaches of the year have now been fired by that team the only ones who have not are mike brown who is currently you know he just <laughs> won the award a couple of weeks ago and Thibodeau. yeah and steve kerr is still there too if oh you and to go back another another year after that too yeah but yeah i believe he won yeah last time he won was like eight years ago uh yeah 16 is the only the only one that he's won so so in the candidates potentially phoenix assistant kevin young mike budenholzer uh, and nick nurse and yeah we'll see on Ty Lu. this does feel like kind of a Ty Lu sort of job worth noting again that chris haynes remember his tweet right when ishbia took over that isaiah thomas was going to be prominently involved and isaiah thomas is sitting next to matt ishbia during the playoffs they're they're great friends how does isaiah thomas man that guy how does he manage to worm his way in with all all these he really has a great eye for like getting in with all all these rich people somehow or another and so we'll see who who they end up going to and also reporting interestingly from tim mcmahon that ayton's teammates shared their coach's frustration with what they perceived to be inconsistent effort and aggression from the seven footer ayton would be excited about a fresh start with another franchise the Suns are expected to aggressively explore the trade market for him this summer that's uh from tim mcmahon and they've also made some front office changes per chris haynes interestingly didn't say who they were but a front office executive and two scouts were dismissed uh, just before monty williams was let's finish up with this Ime Yudoka interestingly signed on in Houston before the lottery. So no no if he's gotten Wembenyama or, or who else. And before all these other openings, oh, you're supposed to maybe be a candidate in Toronto. And now you know, I think Yudoka would be a very interesting candidate in both Philly 
and in Phoenix had he not signed on. Maybe there and, just, and Milwaukee theoretically and yeah and Milwaukee. But of course he did sign on. I think maybe that was a, a smart move by him in the sense that Houston wasn't going to be too worried about his past, whereas maybe some of the others would either do more dil- due diligence or be upset, or their markets would be upset over what was found in that due diligence. That Houston is still kind of out of the national radar, so they can get away with it a little bit more than you could in say Brooklyn with uh, KD there. Of course Brooklyn was going to sign Udoka when when KD was there, so presumably KD likes him. But now we've got Phoenix, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Toronto. How would you rank those openings if you're a new coach? Where would you want to go the most? To me, the the top choice uh, is between Phoenix and Milwaukee because even though there's a higher risk, they're championship level teams. I mean, the Bucks had the best record. They have Giannis, who is in contention, if not the best player in the league right now. And KD and Booker are a fascinating combination. How the new CBA will make it harder for those teams to improve or even retain their talent levels is a fair consideration, as is the relative age of them. I would lean towards the sons of those two because... Durant's game should age reasonably well. I, I mean, there were he did seem to be losing some steam. And Booker is a great young player. I mean, Booker trying to chug his way into the top 10, one, one ridiculously efficient playoff game at a time. I love Giannis. I think that Giannis is the best individual player on either of those teams. But the rest of the Bucks being so much older and you have the weird stuff with ownership there. Not that I'm super confident in Suns ownership. So I would go Suns one, Bucks two. So then the other ones, it's the Raps and um well detroit. i'm forgetting and detroit. detroit without knowing the lottery results i actually still think <laughs> i would go detroit because toronto has this reckoning coming Masai is fantastic Masai yeah, is but you got to work for troy weaver though in detroit that's a little bit of a uh, no i think yeah it, like but i'm talking about just if you want if you want to win a, the I, I guess the components of like potentially getting fired i think weaver is probably going to be relatively loyal uh but i also think he has no idea how to put a team together that's going to actually win yeah i think part of it for me so I'm torn between those two. I mean, and obviously if the Pistons win the lottery and I haven't done enough of a full scout on everyone else on, on where else they could finish, they'd be really happy with. The reason why is just because there's a reckoning coming in Toronto. They have they're, they're A, they're not good enough right now and B, they have a bunch of players that either are expensive or are getting there. So I think that their immediate future is actually going to be worse than their immediate past. And considering where their immediate past is, it's not exactly thrilling. You also get more time in Detroit just because there aren't any expectations that the team is good right now. That Weaver's probably going to bring some stuff in that he thinks makes them better. Probably another power forward. We'll see how that goes. So, but I do love Masai. I think he's I think he's the best general manager in the league overall. I'll go Toronto three, Detroit four. But it's close. Real close between those two. Yeah. Well, at least Toronto too. They have so many assets that if they do decide to pivot, they'll still be able to have a good team probably and they could actually even... yeah they, they could rebuild in a very very quick order of succession if they wanted to because the players that they would move they would get assets for like og yeah phoenix is number one because they, they actually with kd and booker like that's a good foundation i think that's going to be stable for a while i don't think there's a feeling that booker might be leaving whereas Giannis, you know he's got a little bit of an inflection point coming up uh, as well but you can still say hey if we're in milwaukee i have a chance to win a championship next year i would give who do you think has a better chance winning a championship next year phoenix or milwaukee coach independent the bucks because we've seen them win with this group even if it was a couple years ago yeah man phoenix they just have so both these teams have so little flexibility the bucks definitely have a better supporting cast whereas phoenix just kind of I, I mean are people interested really interested in deandre ayton the reporting indicates that they are i but of course everyone who might be saying that is 
someone who has a vested interest in making it look like DeAndre Ayton is valued around the league. But I mean, clearly they got to get something for him. Like why anyone would be interested in him on the contract that he's on is completely beyond. I mean, it's it's a negative value contract. And and even when he was playing well, he was he's overpaid at that contract. Like he doesn't really change the game on either end. Are you going to get more out of him? Really? Like how how many times does that actually happen? Yeah. So I I would go Phoenix one probably more just because you're going to you have more years than you do in Milwaukee, probably Milwaukee two, Toronto three, Detroit four, and pending, of course, the lottery results. And I think maybe we'll record like a little something. We still got to do the preview, actually, for sure. Actually, we'll do that probably tomorrow morning of uh, Denver and the Lakers because that's, I can't wait to talk about that series. That's going to kick ass. Uh, so that's when we'll talk to you next. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.